Morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Labor and Love. In the swing era, in honor of 
my dad.
Get the delicious cereal you crave without any of the bad Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Labor and Love. That extended uh, set there to begin the show today is dedicated to my father, William Robert Morgan, who, if he were still here, would have a birthday tomorrow. Um, and one gift that he gave me, among many, was... Music, appreciation of different types of music. He didn't really appreciate much beyond the music of his youth, the 30s and 40s, big swing bands mostly, as you heard. But he loved his music. I mean, it was a, it was a connection for him. He'd stay up at night and listen to his music, one song after another. And uh, that made an impression on me and also on my brother, Charlie, who grew up to be a mus musician. Uh, so, what do we have there? We had Benny Goodman with Sing, Sing, Sing. I wanted to play one called Stomping at the Savoy, but I've, I need to authorize my computer or something. Um... Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman. And then, <coughs> pardon me, Billy Holiday's Immortal, God Bless the Child That's Got His Own. And that last one was an incredible tour de force by Piano King, Art Tatum. Well, welcome to Labor and Love Radio. It's a Saturday morning, and it's 10 a.m., and we're here to give you the truth. 
one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And when I say labor, I mean you. Okay, so what do we got on the show today? Jan celebrating William Robert Morgan's... uh, Hundred and whatever sixth birthday. We got several things we want to talk about. We've got our radio labor show. We've got Bituation Room's take on Brazil's sad January sixth. Why North Hollywood strippers are unionized. Versus in strike in New York. Labor history in two minutes. Ballad for the working man. We'll play that on our next set. Los Alecranes. Member of the Alecranes died not too long ago. And really, really beloved and cherished. A real, uh, real minch. What can you say? Theo Tony. So we're going to play something. So now we're going to play our radio labor feature. Sorry, I was just getting songs together there. And, um, radio labor, what's going on around the world with working people and their organization? Radio labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, January 13th, 2023. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, the growing violence aimed at women journalists, how educators help teachers in war zones, the Labor Start report about union events and singing. A woman's place is in her union. We organize and stand for equal rights, hardships and discrimination. Ongoing battles we continue to This is Radio Labour. Typically, some of the threats that have been aimed at women journalists have absolutely focused on sexualised smears, accusations of them being prostitutes, threats to target their children. 
and it's absolutely behaviour that's designed to silence. And whilst a lot of that happens online, it also does spill out into real-life stalking and harassment. Michelle Stanistreet is the General Secretary of the National Union of Journalists in the United Kingdom. In a recent webinar, she spoke about the increasing threats of violence being aimed at journalists, especially women journalists. The webinar was organized by the International Federation of Journalists. The IFJ represents 600,000 media workers from 187 labor organizations in more than 140 countries. Safety has become one of the most defining issues for journalists in a generation, and that's particularly the case for women. That makes it a defining issue for us as trade unionists and leaders of our unions. We know that impunity is a scourge right across the journalistic community globally, and it's one that the NUJ and all of our sister unions around the world have been working very hard with the IFJ as part of our commitment to stamp that scourge out. But safety isn't just an issue in conflict zones or in regimes led by dictators and despots or or in places where organised crime is, is rife. It's absolutely a big issue for NUJ members and our journalists working right across the UK and Ireland where we've seen a really concerning increase and spike in the number of cases involving our members, particularly over the last two years, with journalists increasingly being harassed and singled out for attack simply for doing their job. The kind of examples that I'm talking about are very diverse. We've seen countless incidents of photographers and reporters being shouted at, abused, chased, physically attacked on the streets whilst they've been covering demos and protests, especially through the COVID period. We've had many cases of far-right activists issuing death threats to journalists on social media, putting their home addresses and information on their families out into the public domain. The first lockdown, one of the cases we had very early in the first lockdown in the UK was a woman reporter who works for a local newspaper who had to flee her home with her six-year-old daughter after the police came to tell her there were credible threats against her life and against her daughter's life. And our research, and backed up by the research that we've been part of with the UK government, shows that shows very clearly that women and black and minority ethnic journalists are especially targeted. They face a, a double or a triple whammy as journalists trying to do their work. We've dealt with cases of women reporters who've been targeted with threats of rape and sexual violence, threats to be set on fire, to have her throat slit, threats to rape their young baby or maim their children. And it's absolutely behaviour that's designed to silence. And whilst a lot of that happens online, it also does spill out into real-life stalking and harassment involving perpetrators turning up in workplaces or even at journalists' homes. And it kind of creates that constant pressure as a backdrop to people's working lives. And most male reporters who've taken part in our research studies have always said, no matter how much abuse their own work might garner, it's never on the same scale as many of their female colleagues. Many of them 
in looking at this as an issue have been deeply shocked to realise the extent of harassment and abuse that their women colleagues working in the same newsrooms might be experiencing every single day. You can hear an extended version of the report by Ms. Stanistreet on the Radio Labour website. That was Radio Labour C. Marie Ainsborough reporting. Investing in education is the best option to bring peace. That is Johannes Benti, a member of the Board of Education International. EI is the Global Union for Teachers and Other Educators. It represents more than 30 million workers who are members of 400 labor organizations in 172 countries. EI supports education workers who are trying to bring free public quality education to students all around the world. One of the ways it does is to help education organizations in liberation. An example is Ethiopia, a country in the Horn of Africa. The country has a population of 150 million. In November 2020, the Ethiopian government began military operations in Tigray, a region in the north of the country. The fighting forced more than 2 million people to flee their homes and left at least 2.3 million in need of assistance. A fragile peace was established in November 2022. Here's Mr. Benti. The northern part of Ethiopia, there was a war um, that began in November 2020. Um, that has really affected a lot. Uh, schools were closed and, and some, some of them were destroyed. Um, uh, education was not conducted, so teachers are also affected. Um, the impact of the war was really huge. Um, not only schools, but also um, social services like health and others were really not serving, and uh, the impact was really huge. We have been writing letters now and then to the concerned authorities um, to stop war and to sit down and negotiate. Um, there are also displacement of teachers from there, and uh, then we requested the government to pay their salaries. Um, in some cases, that was not possible, but uh, there are teachers who um, displaced from there and who came to Addis Ababa. Uh, we requested the government for the replacement until the time that uh, the condition in Tigray uh, will become normal. And uh, we are on the process. For us, we have tried to, to support them financially, so in solidarity. Um, uh, in, in some borders of uh, the Tigray region also, in, in, in Amhara region, for example, there was schools destroyed, there was um, um, teacher houses destroyed, so we supported financially to some extent. Um, so what we have been trying was just to, to stop the war. Uh, we reported the matter to the regional committee, uh, Africa Regional Committee, Afro Region Committee has discussed on the matter two times, and we have adopted two resolutions uh, each year. Uh, we have submitted the report to the concerned authorities of the Ethiopian government. Um, and then uh, still, um, the war continued. Then in August 31, uh, we have um, released the press to the local media uh, to request the parties to stop war and negotiate. Uh, now that it is a good news, we have heard last November the parties have agreed to stop war and negotiate on the matter. Yeah. Investing in education is the 
the best option um, to bring peace because peace education, I mean, I mean uh, supporting children learn about tolerance, coexistence, peace education, um, I mean, the value of education is enormous and uh, investing in education, investing in quality education uh, is the best remedy to bring peace. Uh, so, yeah, it's very important. Yeah, it's well researched, well discussed, and still we advocate for investment, investing in education. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the growing controversy surrounding the newly elected General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, a clear defeat for Amazon in the United States in its campaign to crush organizing efforts in its facilities in New York State, and an interview with the courageous leader of an independent trade union in Iran who provides us with her take on the protests that are rocking the regime there. We also carried news of the labor movement's reaction to the attempted coup in Brazil earlier this week, including coverage of the efforts made by Brazilian unions to secure key locations and facilities across that country. And of course, we had continuing coverage of the wave of wage strikes sweeping the world, but most especially the United Kingdom, where public transport, healthcare, and public sector workers are leading the way, but are soon to be joined by firefighters. But my favorite top story of the week was one detailing the growing solidarity between nurses in Portugal and in the United Kingdom. As they face identical challenges, their unions are developing joint responses. On our Working Women page, you will find news detailing how the United Kingdom's push to terminate the worker protections it retained after Brexit are being threatened and why that threat is especially dangerous for women workers. We also carried an examination of the role of women in Spain's care sector and some very good news from Indonesia where women workers continue to organize and continue to win workplace improvements. And sadly, we also had yet more coverage of the dismal conditions for women workers on Australian construction sites where they lack even the most basic sanitary facilities. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week included a look at the lives of the 12 healthcare workers killed in an explosion at a South African hospital on Christmas Eve, the horrible death of a crusading journalist in Bangladesh, and how Irish public transport workers scored a victory against workplace harassment this week. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Belarus, Turkey, the Philippines, Canada, Myanmar, and Kazakhstan. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with A Woman's Place. Continued. 
And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. Radio Labor journalists are unionized with the Canadian Media Guild and Unifor and accredited by the International Federation of Journalists. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about... Baby, cut that thing off. I hear it. Kill me. Ooh, wee. What is that you got on you smelling so good? I ain't going to work today, I know. Call my job. Tell the boss I won't be here. I said, call my job. Oh, you can tell him I'm sick, tell him anything. But I just had too much weekend. On Saturday, I caught the horses. And today, I got a thousand bucks. I said, Saturday, I caught the horses. And today, I got a thousand bucks. Oh, you look so good to me this morning, darling. That I ain't thinking about getting up. After Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I don't want to go to work at home. I said, after Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you know I don't want to go to work at home. After that long weekend, darling, I don't want to do a thing but lay around. Take the phone off the hook.
got too much weekend. He said, I'm fired. Oh, no. You can't do that to me. Did you really take the phone off the hook? You can't take a joke. I've never seen a woman like you before in all days of my life. Now, what you gonna do about paying the bill? Yeah, I said the bills. Now, you got the gas bill, the light bill, I got the food bill, you got the electric bill, and you got the water bill. Look like you gonna have to get a job. And I don't want you coming in fussing, saying I'm pimping when I ask you how much the check is every weekend. Are you listening? Pardon again. First of all, we had um, we had uh, Radio Labor, Radio Labor with their World Labor Report emphasizing today the problems, the prejudice, the brutality that uh, lady gen- journalists, female journalists. Remember one incident where a woman was just in a crowd of men, and uh, they started taking her clothes off and started raping her. 
or she was rescued. Men just act with impunity in certain in certain situations, and even men that you consider, you know, peaceful, calm, never be a rapist, are not to be because of the compound worlds we live in. There's a man's world and there's a woman's world, and you talk a certain way in women's world, or else you don't get treated, you know, seriously. But in a man's world, you can, yes, you can be a rapist. You can talk about all that stuff. You can be a, a different person. Something like the guy Santos, who's uh, in New York. He was elected to the House of Representatives based on a, a series of lies about who he was. First, he was Jewish, and his relatives had had uh, survived the Holocaust, and then he had worked for uh, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Um, he was gay, and uh, he had a house in the area. Well, all of that was not true, completely not true. And if you know men, that's perfectly understandable. You know how men act. Okay, and then we had uh, Albert King, a couple by Albert King, Call My Job. That one was for you, Earl. And uh, followed by Let's Have a Natural Ball. And let's see what we got here. Nurses in strike in New York. In These Times, published on Portside. More than 7,000 nurses at two New York hospitals ended a three-day strike and returned to work on Thursday after they resolved what they said was a major sticking point in negotiations with the hospital. Too few nurses. And if you notice, that's what a lot of the nurse, nurses, medical people, active Active people, that's one of their main concerns. There aren't enough people to take care of the patients. One woman was talking about how she was supervising nurses covering 50 babies. This is the bad one. Ten nurses or eight nurses, and each one had nine or ten babies to supervise. So this isn't about just about putting money in the nurses' pockets. This is when you end up going to the hospital. Who do you want there? Someone who's overworked and stressed and and upset at the way she's treated by by her employer or he, or you want someone who's part of an organization that has achieved something, acting collectively. I mean, it'll certainly make for better cooperation around the job. But, see, we tend to say, oh, well, that's the nurses. No, that's not just the nurses. That's us. The tentative contract deals with the nurses reached with Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan and Montefiore Medical Center 
in the Bronx early Thursday, but also increase their pay. An agreement that unions had largely nailed down before the strike began. But the many nurses on the picket line this week said that their main priority was improving working conditions by adding nurses to short-staffed hospital floors, where they said crowded conditions had put patients at risk and led to stress and burnout among the staff. I feel like you're doing the basic that you need to get done for the patients, said Kelly De Palma, a night nurse in the Montefiore emergency room, who said 15 patients were typically handed off to her when she arrived at work. The medication is ordered, you give them that, but you don't have time to do much else. You're kind of treading water to get through the night. Strike exemplified a a problem in the hospitals across the nation where cost-cutting administrators, driven in part by low Medicaid reimbursement rates, had resulted in staff stretched well beyond the recommended safe staffing ratio. Among states, only California, and we remember that when uh, it was part of the uh, anti-Arnold campaign, one of the demands of the, of the nurses in a conflict with Arnold was to decrease the number of patients per nurse. Among states, only California has a sweeping mandated nurse-patient ratio law, and ratios at its hospitals are enough to make New York nurses envious. One nurse for every four patients in the emergency room, for example and one nurse for every five patients on regular inpatient medical care. For intensive care, nurses care for one or two patients. So this is on... Um, in these times, this article, if you want to check it out for yourself, I just read the better part of it. had some off the pole and onto the picket line why North Hollywood strippers are organizing. After nine months on strike, California strippers are poised to make Star Garden the country's only unionized strip, strip club. Dancers at North Hollywood's Star Garden Topless Bar performed their final theme demonstration and picket line November 5th, 2022, just like outside the club where they'd been on strike since March. Tonight's theme was graduation, celebrating the dancers' months on the picket line ending with a union election. Election results were still pending due to legal challenges from club owners. The dancers were confident that they would win the vote to join Actors' Equity, a union for live theater performers. Such a victory would make Garden Star Garden the only unionized strip club in the country 
The first since the lusty lady in San Francisco. Hey. Closed in 2013. Among the sticking points of the club's failure to respond to alleged sexual assault, non-consensual filming by patrons, and verbal intimidation by the staff. Answers say their petition was ignored. So this is another one. I believe this one has been settled. The picket line. North Hollywood stripper. Okay. Let's see about playing some music. Alacranes. This is about Chicano Park back from Chicano Park, oh Chicano Park. 
I left the land to try and earn me pay They say there's work in Lancashire today I've torn me hands and I broke me back Pumping cotton and toting sacks But I've not seen much of gold or silver coin Hey, hey, a working day Fourteen hours to earn your pay Hey, hey, a working day Cotton and coal and steam From Eston Bolton, older man by coal I've tramped the roads and never been alone I've seen men stone and watchmen starve to skin and bone in England's pure and green and pleasant land. Hey, hey, a working day, 14 hours to earn your pay. Hey, hey, a working day, cotton and coal and steam. There are looms I know that are just never still, with men to work all hours to earn their fill. With women grafting and children too To earn enough to see them through Other masters they get richer every day Hey, hey, a working day Fourteen hours to earn your pay Hey, hey, a working day Cotton and coal and steam I've worked in line and dug for Wally Coal I've followed the rails and the road like a mole I'm a weaver, miner, a working man I'll turn me hand to out I can For a lad must earn himself a living wage Hey, hey, a working day Fourteen hours to earn your pay Hey, hey, a working day Cotton and coal and steam I've eyed the girls and courted with the best I've drunk the ale and idled with the rest but I'll always work and I'll always strive to try and keep myself alive. But I'd rather be rich and watch the world go by. Hey, hey, a working day, 14 hours to earn your pay. Hey, hey, a working day, cotton and coal and steam. Hey, hey, a working day, 14 hours to earn your pay. Hey, hey, a working day, cotton and coal and steam.
Okay, well, that set <clears throat> was a mixed bag at best. I wanted to play the song about Chicano Park for two reasons. Number one, it's kind of a monument to what popular movements can achieve um, if they're unified and focused. This uh, community, it's called Logan Park in San Diego. There was a big open area under the freeway, and um, the state wanted to make a highway patrol training center out there. Highway patrol uh, place, headquarters. <coughs> and the community just said no. They got their their tools, and they just started digging, and they just started creating the park that they wanted without getting permission for it. And after years of hemming and awing and backing and forthing, the community got to keep the land. The community set it up so it was a park, big, wide, beautiful park where people picnic, People can stroll, people can watch the sunset, as the song says. That's Chicano Park. Go, when you go to San Diego, you get a chance to visit. Go visit it and see what collective action can do. The second reason I wanted to play it was because I think Antonio Nieres plays on it. Antonio, not too long ago, passed away. After that, I had a song called Ballad for the Working Men. That's a British group. And uh, it's one of the um, typical British labor songs. Extra stylishly done. And then just for the hell of it, I played uh, Beyonce singing ahead of the great Patsy Cline. That's called The Pieces. And the only reason I played that was because I've been reading up about the period, the 1970s, especially. Onstat um, was a, a big mover. That's when she made her name and her career. In that case, she's singing uh, Patsy Cline's big hit, I Fall to the Floor. About 11 years.
Okay, we're uh, we're back with you. There's Davis playing a blue. Okay, here it is. Damar Hamlin's pain is not a feel-good story. And here again, people are going to say, wait, wait a minute. I thought this show was about labor. Why are you talking about football? People who, who are out there on the field that you watch and cheer for are working. Getting paid for what they do. They're getting paid a whole lot, but the risks are heroin, as, as everybody f realized for a couple of days. Everyone was sitting on the edge of their seats to see if a young man named DeMar Hamlin was going to die or not. Football player who collapsed for no reason on the field. He made a tackle and then fell down and just collapsed. He died. Twice he was brought back from from being, being dead. And then he was taken to a hospital where now it seems like he's, he's recovered to the point where he can go back home. But Dave Zirin, resident socialist sports writer, makes a point. I mean, everybody's going back, everybody's going back to their betting and to their Choices, their picks, their bets. Just nothing is happening. Dave Zirin says, Mar Hamlin's pain is not a feel-good story. NFL is encouraging the public to feel joy that the young man didn't die instead of trauma for the joke can go on. Feels great to see the surprisingly rapid recovery of B Buffalo Bills safely safety Damar Hamlin. Feels great to see fans support a charity that, that Hamlin started in college and that provides toys at risk for at risk kids who are harmed by the pandemic. All of this feels great. Hamlin almost dying on National television is not a feel-good story. We must not forget that in order to survive, Hamlin needed nine minutes of CPR in public view of millions. We now know, according by the reporting of ESPN's Don Vanata, that the NFL did not want to cancel the game, despite the sight of players on both teams praying, crying, and in a state of trauma. As if these, these guys understand what they're doing. By getting in a car and getting it up to about 35 or 40 miles an hour and smashing it into the, to a wall. As someone whose son plays high school football, I found the spectacle terrifying. It was disturbing enough to his high school coach that he sent a lengthy, heartfelt email 
the following morning to parents recognizing the horror of it all and ensuring them about CPR training everyone involved with the sport received. There's no reason to feel good about someone almost dying and in the NFL willing to throw players in the thresher and look the other way. Originally, the league put out a message that in five minutes the game was going to start over again. It's going to continue. And the players, thank God for the players and the coaches, they just told the NFL, the management, owners, that uh, they weren't going to play, that the game was over. And so it was. In addition, accepting the media and focus on Hamlin as, in the words of Goodell, an extraordinary situation obscures the fact that NFL players do not live as long as the rest of us. Retired player named Uchinwari collapsed and died at 38 just one week ago. The wear and tear of the sport, the fact that it has, as Demore Smith, the NFL executive director a 100% injury rate means that on-field heroes suffer when the cameras are off means that NFL players as former St. Louis Cardinal linebacker Dave Megacy told me many years ago directly from being young to being old and skipping middle age What happened to Hamlin, Dave Megacy says, should be an opportunity to speak about why in this all-too-dangerous league players do not have guaranteed contracts. This is something that came out. The other leagues, the uh, NBA and uh, (coughs) MLB, both have guaranteed contracts. So if a player gets hurt or for some reason can't play, they still get their pay, their money. It should be an opportunity to discuss how players are often treated as expendable extensions of equipment and not as human beings. It should be an opportunity to debate the sport of football and whether it is safe for human beings to participate in. Other thing is that Hamlin. Doesn't it's not vested for either uh, retirement, pension, or health care. A player with three plus years of experience gets vested for health care and uh, pension. These discussions the NFL does not want us to have because they threaten the future of the most popular league in the country. Golden goose that lays billion-dollar eggs. Instead, they want us to discuss how inspirational Demar Hamlin is for his teammates and fans across the country. But a near-death experience should never be seen as joyous, and it is a revelation of the NFL's nihilism that is the product of spectators. 
so. Amazing. Now, I wanted to play something by George Carlin. Baseball versus football. I'd like to talk a little bit about baseball and football. Starting with baseball, baseball is different from any other sport in a lot of different little ways. For instance, in most sports, you score points or you score goals. In baseball, you score runs. In most sports, the ball or the object is put in play by the offensive team. In baseball, the defense puts the ball in play, and only the defensive team is allowed to touch the ball. In fact, in baseball, if an offensive player touches the ball intentionally, he's out. Also, most sports, the team is run by a coach. In baseball, the team is run by a manager, and only in baseball does the manager or the coach have to wear the same uniform the players do. Can you picture Bill Parcells in his New York Giants uniform? Now, baseball and football are different from one another in other kind of interesting ways, I think. First of all, um, baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. <laughs> football is played on a gridiron in a stadium sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. <laughs> Baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. <laughs> Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. <laughs> in football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. Football is concerned with downs. What down is it? Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up? Are you up? I'm not up. He's up. In football, the specialist comes in to kick. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve someone. In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. Whoops! <laughs> Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, blocking, piling on, late hitting, unnecessary roughness, and personal fouls. Baseball has the sacrifice. <laughs> Football is played in any kind of weather. Rain, sleet, snow, hail, mud. Can't read the numbers on the field, can't read the yard markers, can't read the players' numbers. The struggle will continue. In baseball, if it rains, we don't come out to play. <laughs> I can't come out to play. It's 
Baseball has a seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. <laughs> Baseball has no time limit. We don't know when it's going to end. We might have extra innings. Football is rigidly timed, and it will end even if we have to go to sudden death. In baseball, during the game in the stands, there's kind of a picnic feeling. Emotions may run high or low, but there's not that much unpleasantness. In football, in the stands, during the game, you can be sure that at least 27 times you were perfectly capable of taking the life of a fellow human being. Preferably a stranger. And finally, the objectives of the two games are totally different. In football, the object is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy, in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. <laughs> and to be safe. I hope I'll be safe at home. Safe at home. There's George Carlin's take on football and baseball. But first of all, we talked about how the players are not Pension and uh, and uh, medical medical plan requirements. The fact that they don't have guaranteed contracts. Um, these are things we can look at as if it's a labor situation, which of course it is. By the way, the book that uh, Dave Zirin mentioned is called Out of Their League. Named Dave Megacy, who was indeed a uh, linebacker, for, mostly for the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, kind of in the 60s and 70s, broke that whole silent wall about you know, what really went on in, in, in football teams and in the foot and in the league. There were other such things too, but that's one of them. Recovered. How about the game studio industry? We reported last week that Microsoft had allowed a union of about 300 of its testers. Let's read the background on that. Years of groundwork over the past decade laid over social media gathering. Workers are organizing in fight against work, low pay, and harassment. Unions are on the rise and beginning to fight workers.
Division Headline Men California Civil Rights Blizzard Albany. Albany Bogotaria. out it's on uh hard flat
higher wages. Time for our labor history connection. On this day in labor history, the year was 1939. That was the day a new radio show began on CBS Radio. Welcome to the motion picture star's own radio program, The Gulf Screen Guild Show. With Jack Benny, Joan Crawford, Reginald Gardner. The show featured some of the biggest names in Hollywood. All of the actors' fees were donated to the Motion Picture Relief Fund. The fund was started in 1922 with the motto of taking care of our own. Proceeds from the show went to support the motion picture country home for retired workers in the film industry. These included actors, cameramen, set designers, and even security guards. These retired workers only paid what they could afford to live there. Eventually, the retirement home allowed working people from the television industry as well. Golf Oil sponsored the program for its first three seasons. It was called the Golf Screen Guild Show. Over the years, the show took on several other sponsors and names. It also migrated to NBC, then to ABC, and then back to CBS Radio. In all, it ran for 14 seasons and more than 500 episodes. In its early years, the show was a variety review. It included songs along with dramatic and comedy sketches. Later, the show recreated films for the radio audience. It was a challenge to get a whole film down to just 22 minutes. Films covered by the show included classics such as Casablanca, Arsenic and Old Lace, and Pinocchio. But despite the changes and challenges, the show raised $800,000 for the retirement home by 1942. The retirement home was almost closed in 2009, but continues operation. Workers in many industries have long found creative and collaborative ways to support each other and to truly take care of their own. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Do national security concerns outweigh the right of workers to form a union? That question was being debated on this day in labor history. The year was 2003. The head of the Transportation Security Administration, James Loy, made the case that collective bargaining would be an impediment to the war on terrorism. He signed an order that prohibited unionization by passenger and baggage screeners. The move was just one of several that eroded federal workers' rights in the name of national security in the aftermath of 9-11. The TSA was founded in the months after the 9-11 attacks by the Bush administration. Prior to the TSA, screening was done by private contractors run by the airlines. With the new organization, more than 45,000 screeners became part of the federal workforce. 
Massachusetts Senator Teddy Kennedy disagreed with the Bush administration's position that these workers could not join a union. He released a statement saying, it's not Homeland Security, it's union busting. The TSA workers did not give up their fight to join a union. For the better part of a decade, they continued to organize and make their case. In 2011, the workers voted to become part of the American Federation of Government Employees. It was the largest union election by federal workers in United States history. There are limitations to the union, however, such as the screeners cannot go on strike. But the union can advocate for safe and fair workplace conditions. When the union was finally recognized, President of AFGE John Gage issued a statement. He declared, today marks the recognition of a fundamental human right for 40,000 patriotic federal employees who have been disenfranchised since the inception of the agency. Today, nearly 16,000 screeners have joined the union. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1860. That was a day of tragedy as the Pemberton Mill collapsed in Lawrence, Massachusetts. The collapse of the five-story textile mill was one of the worst workplace disasters in U.S. history. Most of the 800 workers in the mill were women and Irish immigrants. Some were teenagers. During that fateful afternoon, as they were working, they heard a strange rattling noise. Then, within seconds, the mill collapsed. Tons of machinery crashed through the collapsing floors, crushing workers. Many more were trapped. Rescuers attempted to free the trapped workers. But that night, as the rescue efforts continued, a fire broke out in the ruined plant. Many trapped workers were burned alive. Helplessly, the rescuers could only look on with horror. The exact number of dead is unknown, but estimates range between 88 and 145 workers killed that day, with another 150 suffering serious injuries. The large building was only seven years old when it collapsed. Poor construction was determined to be the cause of the disaster. In an effort to maximize profits, the mill had more heavy equipment inside than the building could support. The New York Times reported, the building was never considered to be as staunch as it ought to have been. It was built about seven years since and was then thought a sham. Indeed, before the machinery was put in, the walls spread to such a degree that some 22 tons of iron plates were put in to save it from falling by its own weight. After the disaster, the mill was rebuilt. Workers at the new mill claimed to see the ghosts of those who had died in the tragedy. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1912. That was the day a strike launched one of the most iconic rallying cries of the U.S. labor movement. 20,000 mostly women workers in the Lawrence, Massachusetts textile mills began what became known as the Bread and Roses Strike. Led by the industrial workers of the world, the strike was one of the most important events in the history of women workers. The phrase bread and roses had been used a year earlier by poet John Oppenheim. He published his poem in the American Magazine. His first verse read, As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lofts gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses, for the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. 
The second stanza continued, as we come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead, go crying through our singing, their ancient cry for bread. Small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits knew. Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too. The poem described a call by workers not just for bread or better wages for the basic needs of life. It also called for roses, a life that could include time for beauty and meaning. In 1976, Mimi Farina, the sister of Joan Baez, put the lyrics to music. In 2000, a filmmaker used the title Bread and Roses for his story of unionization efforts of Mexican workers in Los Angeles. And for the past century, the image of Bread and Roses has continued to capture the imagination of working people standing up for their rights. As we come marching, marching, we bring the greater days. For the rising of the women means the Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1942. That was the day that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt reestablished the National War Labor Board just a little over a month before the United States had entered World War II. In the days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Congress voted to join the global conflict. Soon after the war was declared, the president brought together representatives from both business and labor. The president won commitments of no strikes or lockouts during the conflict. He wanted further assurances, however, that the great industrial war machine would continue to run smoothly. He looked back on how labor disputes were handled during World War I as a model. During that earlier global conflict, President Woodrow Wilson had set up a National War Labor Board. President Roosevelt kept the same name for his board, but charged it with even more sweeping powers. The board consisted of 12 members, four from labor, four from business, and four from the general public. But the overall composition of those selected tilted in favor of business. Any labor dispute that might impact the war effort was sent before the board. Since practically the entire United States economy was part of the war engine, this gave the group significant power. In establishing the board, President Roosevelt declared the national interest demands that there shall be no interruptions of any work which contributes to the effective prosecution of the war. The board played a decisive role in setting wages for many workers during the war. Labor protested the hardship of stagnant wages as the raises determined by the board did not keep up with the cost of living as prices were driven up by wartime scarcity. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1868. Representatives from more than 40 locals of the International Union of Bricklayers of North America gathered in New York City. It was the third annual convention of the new union. Members of Local 4 from New York City came to the convention to push for support for the eight-hour day. They also called upon the other unions to stand with their local if they went out on strike to win the eight-hour day. After the Civil War, the idea of an eight-hour workday had increasingly become a rallying cry for workers. 
Skilled craftsmen, such as bricklayers, would help to lead the charge. In 1910, Johns Hopkins University published a report on the bricklayers' contribution to this important labor struggle. According to their report, the convention decided not to press the eight-hour question at that time. Although the resolution for the eight-hour day had not become a part of the union's formal platform, there was growing member support for the cause. That year, Local 4 went out on strike to win the eight-hour day. They were joined by New York Locals 2 and 12. The young union had little experience with leading such an action. But as the report points out, the workers were, quote, routed in all, but went to pieces. The flame of the idea of the eight-hour workday continued to spread across the international. By the next year's convention, it had caught fire. The resolution for the eight-hour workday was adopted and became an official demand of the Bricklayers' Union. Four years later, the New York locals again went out on strike. This time, the more experienced unions found success. And as the report concluded, in just one day, the men won the shorter day on their own terms. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History. Space Jam, new legacy. Right. Yeah, Space Jam 2. Carl, we've seen Space Jam 2. They're not wrong. Okay, so the first thing I want to say is, um, how do I feel about it? They were so clear that it was Warner Brothers, right? They were in the Warner Brothers studio. and Yeah. Um, I thought some parts were really fun and neat, like the... They went to Casablanca, and and then they were in the DC Superman's art style. Now uh, you're talking about by us, LeBron James, searching for an actor playing his son. Yeah, because an actress playing his wife is concerned that the son who created a video game got sucked up by an algorithm. Yeah, Al. The rhythm. Al. You're right. See, See you know this. So one thing, the difference is that we grew up on television and kids today are growing up on algorithms on, on uh, yeah, YouTube. Yeah, that's right. So now the villain is no longer a television monster. It's the algorithm monster. And so this algorithm seduces or, you know, kind entices, of. entices, you know, at least pays attention to the son of LeBron James. He's a siren. Yeah. And it ultimately pits the son versus uh, father in a virtual game 
of basketball based on the Suns game inside the Warner Brothers Studio database computer and while properties being like people dressed like the mask. Uh, root yeah, the wasn't sidelines. it a weird crowd, right? It was everybody famous you ever saw, every character you ever that saw. That gained a lot of notoriety because they had a lot of characters. They had the Drukes from Clockwork Orange. They had the Murderous Nuns from The Nuns, a film that Warner Brothers won't be really released in the States. Yet they used in the character. But to be fair, you put Mr. Smith from the the Matrix in there. It's like being at an amusement park at Warner Brothers. These guys are dressed like the mass. They're dressed like Mr. Mr. Smith, you know. Yeah, and yeah. So it's just a caricature of, of the property. It's now, I didn't think LeBron James acting was bad. I thought the story was bad and the lines they gave him to say, but he was believable. The yeah. story was brutal. I mean, that's the thing. It's like the first one was a TV commercial. Yeah. Using TV, using a sports property with a movie property and then became a movie and then became a